Well, Father, it is with great delight and calmness of heart and clarity of mind that we gather this morning, grateful for the resurrection of Christ, that sealing act, that moment in history when the words of our Lord Jesus and the words of the prophets and scripture was fulfilled and the reality and the hope of our salvation was made so real. Father, we are a needy people this morning and, and we need your strength. And so renew us and strengthen us. And remind us of the great hope of the resurrection today that we would go from here refreshed and encouraged and strengthened in our faith because your Holy Spirit ministering through your Holy Word will bear testimony within us today of the authenticity of the message. And so it is in Jesus' name that we quiet our hearts and turn our eyes to the pages of our Bibles and receive from you our message today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it was like to be one of the disciples? Scripture tells us repeatedly that it was not until after he appeared to them that they began to understand what had happened. Imagine that room, grown men, calloused hands, lots of B.O., whiskers, and bad breath. And they cower and they huddle and they know not what to do. And so it was, we find them on the evening of the first day, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And thus began the beginning of the greatest evangelistic church planting preaching worldwide outreach that is the, wor the world has ever known. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. Maybe some of you can relate to Thomas. I really like him. I think that's what I would have said. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, still a little worried about those Jews who hated Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, he looks right at him, Thomas, 
Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what would you think? What do you think about this resurrection? How do you process it? How do you prove it? We just read, according to John's gospel, that the disciples were very frightened, that they were very uncertain about the reality of what was happening, but Jesus, in bodily form, appeared to them and breathed on them. The Holy Spirit enters them. Forty days later, we know that Jesus is gone, and these cowering disciples, now filled with the Spirit of God, become the authors of our New Testament and become the powerful proclaimers of the gospel around the world the known world of that day. Do you sometimes wish that Jesus would come and give you a chance like he did Thomas to touch his hands and touch his side and look you in the eye and say, see, it's real. Isn't it interesting that John argues, though, that even more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's a statement of the reality of the fact that the church lives by faith and not by sight. He goes on to say that these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, if you want documentation and if you want evidence, you need to read the book. It's in the book. It reminds me of the uh, story that Jesus told in Luke's gospel where we have the, uh, the guy who died, the rich man who died. His servant was Lazarus and he had gone to Hades and he was in torment there and he he begged Father Abraham to let somebody come back from the tomb, come back from the grave, somebody resurrect out of the ground and go tell my brothers that it's all real. And Abraham looks at him and says, they haven't believed Moses and the prophets. They won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. And so if you're looking for evidence this morning, we have to study the book. That's how God gives you strength in your faith. You read God's word, you process it, the spirit of God processes your thinking in your heart, and you say, that's it, I've got it, it's real. And it all lines up. Well, if you're a skeptic this morning, and if you are a doubting Thomas, or if you're someone that you wish someone would come back from the grave, I hope that we can encourage you and strengthen you on the story of the resurrection today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, and I want to skip ahead in time now, and I want to go to the, to the account of the Acts of the Apostles, and I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 25, please. Acts chapter 25, and I want you to listen closely because I need to, to take our audience, I need us together to plop down in a moment in time of one of the most remarkable scenes that you'll ever find in the Bible. You need to think sort of a combination of a, of a palace uh, and a courtroom. It is a large room. You need to understand that we are now uh, several decades, uh, probably somewhere uh, 40 years um, 
beyond the resurrection of Christ. And we are at the waning days of the ministry of the great Apostle Paul. I want to focus on this story today because it is all about the resurrection and we need to understand it very quickly so that we can receive the, the message of the passage. And so you need to know that what this, what this problem is, this is good storytelling here. There's a, there's a problem and there's a good guy, there's a villain and there's a good guy and he's in trouble and, and uh, it just kind of works its way through and it is just the most remarkable and amazing scene. You need to understand that, that Israel and Jerusalem is under Roman rule. It's pretty easy for you to know the first guy's name because you know Felix the cat, right? Well, think Felix. And what you need to understand is that under Felix, not the cat, but Felix, a, a governor ahead of this whole region, the Apostle Paul has been accosted by the Jews for his preaching. And guess why they jumped him? They jump him and they mug him. And if we took time, we won't take time to look at it. They beat on him and they were trying to kill him because he was preaching that the Moses and the prophets taught the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they hate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason they hated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is all of the religious leaders in Israel, several decades past the resurrection of Christ. The same kind of guys, some of them maybe even the same guys who crucified Christ. Listen, you need to understand that they were Old Testament scholars. They weren't, they weren't atheists. They were devout believers in God and they believed God created the earth and they believed in Moses and they studied. In fact, they would put you to shame. They memorized the prophets. They knew the scriptures inside and out and they were waiting for Messiah. And when Jesus came and he ministered and he did his miracles and his disciples preached and they did miracles and even a voice out of heaven when he got baptized said, this is my beloved son, this is the one. And he even sent John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, make way, make way, straighten up the roads, fill in the valleys, he's coming. And they couldn't get it. But they were waiting for Messiah and they didn't believe that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, the miracle worker of Cana, that he was the Messiah. In fact, they hated that thought and they killed him for saying he was the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? The very people who longed for Messiah to come killed him. And these Jews, under Felix, not the cat, Felix the governor, grabbed Paul when he was preaching and beat him up. And the Roman soldiers got there just in time to save his life. And they took him to Felix. And Felix says, what's going on? And they said, this guy's causing all kinds of problems in our community. So Felix brings him before him, sits on his ruling chair, and he can figure out nothing under which to arrest the guy. But... Felix, like many of our leaders today, are, is, is a politician first and foremost. And so he does what the people want to do, what he believes the people want him to do. And he keeps Paul in prison, guess what, for two years. Would you go to prison for two years for preaching the resurrection? Would you just keep your mouth shut? Paul could not not preach. Two years go by, Paul's in prison. 
kept busy studying the word, writing some more of the word. There's a new guy, funny name too. Two years later, Felix is done. A new guy, Festus. Say Festus. Festus. Festus is in charge now. Funny name, isn't it? Festus. Festus is in charge, and that's where I want to pick up the story. Because there's another new ruler in, in Rome, and he's going to come visit Festus. Festus is like a governor, and he has a king, and the king's name is Agrippa. Agrippa. Okay? All right? We don't have time to talk about Agrippa, but he's one of the in line of the Herods. Remember the Herods that, the Herod that, uh, that killed all the little babies when Jesus was born? Remember the, uh, even the Herods who crucified him? He's a, he's a grandson, and there's about five of them. And they were wicked men. Remember the Herod that killed John the Baptist and then he got his guts eaten out with worms? Okay, this is a new Herod. His name is Agrippa. All right? You're going to notice that he has a, a partner with him. Her name is Bernice. So you got our characters. Felix is done ruling. There's a new governor. His name is Festus. Festus has a boss, King Agrippa. Agrippa comes to town to visit Festus. He's new on the job, and so he's going around to visit his regional directors. And he's, he's very pompous, as you'll see. He's got a girl named Bernice with him. Guess what? He lives with her. It's his full sister. It's his sister. These guys are, these guys are unbelievably base. And they're going to encounter our fourth player in the story, a little old man that we understand to be relatively short, probably bald, probably poor eyesight, probably humped over, probably scarred and disfigured from being beaten and hit with stones and rocks and left in trash heaps outside of cities. This is late into his ministry, and the Apostle Paul is going to stand in front of Agrippa and Festus, and he's going to talk to them about, guess what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what your job is with me this morning. I want you to go through the story with me and we are going to react to the resurrection. And each of these people are going to react to the resurrection. We're going to have a couple of different reactions at different times from the same people. You know our players? Forget Felix, he's done. He put Paul in prison for two years for preaching the resurrection of Christ. That's all he's done. Now Festus is the man and guess what? Just like Felix can't find anything wrong in him, Festus can't figure out what to keep him on. Agrippa's going to come to town with Bernice, his live-in sister, an incestuous relationship. And then there's the Apostle Paul, who's kept in chains. They're good to him. They do say, give him some freedom, let his friends come and take care of him. But he's in house arrest. Let's read the story. It will read quickly, even though it's a relatively long passage. But you'll get it, and I think you'll enjoy it, and I think that you will find that this is one of the most spectacular scenes that you can envision in the New Testament. And it's the showdown about the resurrection. Let's begin with uh, verse 13 of chapter 25. You can follow along in your Bible, or you listen closely, and it'll help you get the message better. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. See, we know about this. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Oh, Festus had been reviewing the court cases, and he finds that Felix left the apostle Paul for him to deal with. By this time, 
Paul, who was a Roman citizen, had appealed to bypass over all these smaller guys and go straight to Caesar's court in Rome. But he's sitting in their prison and they've got to send him to Rome with a written document explaining what's wrong with this guy and why he should be prosecuted. Okay, back to our text, verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king and he said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. And when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. Remember that verse in a few minutes. I told them that it, was, that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. The Romans had a very developed court system. And when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered that the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. This is still Festus talking. Instead, they had come, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, and look at this, and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I love that phrase. And they had this dispute with him about a dead man named Jesus who Paul said was alive. I was at a loss, Festus says, how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Festus did, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, look at this. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the cities. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. You got the picture? All this pomp and arrogance and royalty and robes and the leading officials of the city trying to hobnob. Agrippa was in town visiting. Festus is on his best behavior. He's talking about this complicated case because he doesn't know how to send it on to Caesar without, real, without any real evidence. And so Agrippa says, well, let me talk. I'd love to hear about that dead man named Jesus. That's kind of what he's thinking. That's that guy talking about the resurrection. Let me hear what he has to say. We got time. They're bored. They're standing around. They're there for several days. And so they come into the room, and then here comes the old Apostle Paul. Isn't that something? Isn't it interesting how history has proven that the greatest man in that room was the Apostle Paul, and all the others were a bunch of pompous fools? Amen. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. They wanted him killed. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. He's acting like he would have had the guts to set him free had he not made the higher court appeal. And so therefore he has to keep him, which he does now at this point. 
But I have nothing definite. Look at here it is, verse 26. I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. In fact, he was scared to death to send a prisoner up to Caesar for his court to rule without any documentation or evidence. So he's very much hoping that as Agrippa sits there next to his sister, Bernice, his lover sister, and all the leading officials of the city try to stand close and look good and get in the picture, and this shrimpy old midget, wilted, beat-up preacher comes and stands in front of him, Festus is really hoping that Agrippa's going to figure out something he can write down and tell him, hang him on this one. Now look what happens. Remember, this is all because he preached the resurrection of Christ. Chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself in this situation. He did not need a representation. This was an unofficial hearing, an unofficial court. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. I think it's interesting that Luke, the historian, writes in there that He understood from the documentation in his studies that Luke had motioned with his hand. I take it that Paul was at his finest here. And Paul is ready to preach and to communicate as clearly as he can. King Agrippa, verse 2, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Agrippa was known... Agrippa, though he had been raised in Rome, was known for his expertise of Jewish affairs, Jewish culture, Jewish law, and even the Old Testament. Paul knows this. Paul knows about these people. These are well-known political figures. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, thank you for listening to me. It's going to take a few minutes. If you listen closely, and you know what the Apostle Paul is thinking inside him? I'm going to lead you to Christ. You listen closely, Agrippa, because it'll save your soul from hell. He doesn't say that. He's smart enough to be a little smoother, but he gets right at it. He begins, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Here goes Paul. The Jews, verse 4, all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I was a Pharisee. In Philippians, he says that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It means that that he was a person who knew and obeyed the Old Testament law on steroids. He was way beyond the average person in his commitment to the Old Testament. I lived as a Pharisee. He kept vows. He would be like the equivalent of some kind of a Jesuit priest kind of thing. Just a real strict life. I have a joke about Jesuit priests, but I'm not going to tell you. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. Look what he says. The reason I'm on trial today is because of what our fathers talked about, the hope. You know what the hope was? Messiah and the resurrection. I'm on trial today because of this hope. Verse 7. This is the promise. Our 12 tribes, we've heard of them, haven't we? 
I told you they show up all throughout the Bible. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Oh, king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. It's because it happened. It's real, and I told them, and they're accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And what's wrong with you people? Why is a resurrection hard for you to get? I too, verse 9, now he's going to slip into his personal testimony. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, the Apostle Paul, for those of you who don't know your Bible very well, he, he got his name changed when he, when he came to follow Christ. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you pers- are persecuting. The Lord replied, verse 16, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me. You can only see a resurrected Christ at this point. What you have seen of me and what I will show you, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. excuse me, verse 22, but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. Doesn't matter who you are. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer as the first and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. There's that resurrection theme. At this point, Festus, okay, who's Paul talking to? Agrippa. He's talking to Agrippa. Festus is sitting there and Festus is welling up and he can't stand it anymore when he finally says, this is what happened. And Festus says at verse 24, Festus interrupts Paul's defense. You are out of your ever-loving mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and it is reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped notice because it was not done in a quarter, a corner. Look, this was front page stuff. Everybody knew it happened. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, 
Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Oh, man. Agrippa's sweating. Agrippa's sweating. He's got to cut this guy off. He's got to stop it. Especially that part about the message where he said, you should repent, turn to God, and prove your repentance by your good deeds. Stop living with your sister, parentheses. Agrippa says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains and the king rose, and with him the governor, and Bernice, and those sitting with them, and they left the room. And pa- Pastor Van's interpretation is, in a hurry. <laughs> and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. So much for Festus getting something from Agrippa to write down on a piece of paper to give to Caesar about this man's guilt. He is doing nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, it was kind of a long story, but it's interesting, isn't it? Did you get the picture in your mind? So let's very quickly respond and and list, as it were, on a chart, as we were maybe a class and had a marker board, let's list what the resurrection of Jesus did inside the heads of these different people. So, for example, number one, the resurrection of Jesus to the Jews was unacceptable. Did you get that? We won't even take time to go back at it, but I emphasized it a couple times. The Jews wanted to kill him, and the Jews wanted to prosecute him, and the Jews wanted to rid themselves of him to the Jews of that day, believers in the Old Testament, believers in Moses and the prophets, but haters of the Messiah, the ones who had nailed him to the cross, hated the Apostle Paul as well. To the Jews, the resurrection of Jesus was unacceptable. Secondly, to King Agrippa... I want you to to remind you back in 25, look at 25, verse 13 to 22. That's where he says in verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, 25, 22, I would like to hear this man myself. I think at this point, Agrippa is very curious, and the resurrection of Jesus at this point to King Agrippa was quite a spectacle. It was quite a spectacle. Let's talk about this. Let's dialogue a little bit. Let me hear some more about what he's saying. I'm very intrigued about this dead man named Jesus that they say is alive again. To think that he had a first-hand audience with the Apostle Paul, he couldn't pass up the chance. Thirdly, to the Apostle Paul, I want you to notice in chapter 25, excuse me, we're now in chapter 26. I want you to notice that to the Apostle Paul, 26.8, when he's talking about the hope of Israel and he's talking about the promise that would come to the 12 tribes. He's talking about Messiah. He's talking about the fact that the resurrected Christ was the Messiah and he's the hope of Israel. And he says to them, verse 8 of 26, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Resurrection is not a new concept to you. And so number three, the reaction to the resurrection to Paul at this point in his life was that it was very reasonable to believe in the resurrection. It was very reasonable. 26 verse 8. Why was it reasonable? Remember I told you these Jews are students of the Old Testament. 
I have the verses listed here, but we don't have time to look at them. They're very interesting. They studied the Old Testament. Do you think they knew who Elijah was? Of course they knew who Elijah was. Do you remember what Elijah did? Remember the story, you Sunday school teachers, of the oil and the flour of the widow of Zarephath? The widow of Zarephath? Remember, she only had enough oil and flour for that day, and the prophet Elijah comes to stay in her guest room? And she says, I only have enough for today. My boy will starve, her little boy. And she's a widow. And Elijah says, go ahead and cook. And every day, without filling the flour bin or the oil jar, she keeps making pancakes and biscuits and gravy. And the oil and the flour never runs out. And then one day, her son gets sick. Do you remember that? And he dies. And it's horrible for this widow. And Elijah lays his body across him and he raises him to the dead. Did these guys know about that resurrection? Did they know that a dead guy could come back to life? And Elisha did it as well. Same thing, a widow's, a widow's daughter, though, I think. No, nope, it was the Shunammite's son. It was a widow's son. And they knew the book of Daniel too, didn't they? And in Daniel, it says this. In Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to, sh- to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel taught a resurrection of the dead. Ezekiel talked about his dry bones in the desert coming to life and resurrecting. And so Paul says, what is wrong with you people that you think a resurrection is hard to understand? You believe the prophets. You believe Moses. He's also implying, too, that they should have known from prophecy, prophetic Old Testament passages, that Jesus would rise again. So to Paul, it was very reasonable To the Jews, it was unacceptable, this resurrection. To Agrippa, it was going to be quite a spectacle. To Paul, it was very logical and reasonable, based upon Scripture. He then slips into his testimony. Did you catch that? I used to be a persecutor. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and I hated those Christians. They called them at this time, and you can see it in these passages, the followers of the way. There's actually been a cult named The Way. It is still active. I think they're based out of the state of Ohio. Back then, this is where they got the name. The people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and had followed after Christ after the resurrection were followers of The Way. Do you know, and we won't take time to look at it, three times in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul gives his testimony The first time Luke does it in Acts chapter 9 when it really happens. That's that on the road to Damascus. Let me just tell you quickly how it went in case you're not familiar with it. Paul was a religious leader of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Following the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the followers of the way became quite widespread. The apostles are preaching. People are being saved. They're leaving their synagogues. They're starting little churches, house churches, We can't have this. He goes from city to city and he gets a roster of the people on the synagogue list who have left for their home churches who are the followers of Christ. The most graphic account that we're given is in the end of chapter 7 of Acts when Paul holds the coats. He's the leader and the director while they stoned Stephen to death with big rocks. This is horrible stuff. We don't see this so much. 
I watched a brief YouTube clip yesterday on, the new, on, on a, a news report of, of women beating another woman in McDonald's, photographed on a, a handphone. It made my heart pound a little bit. It made me upset. It made me angry. Can you imagine this wonderful Deacon Stephen, the preacher of the gospel, preaching and proclaiming Christ, but then he gets to the part where he calls him a, a brood of vipers, whited sepulchers, dead bones on the inside, murderers of the Messiah, and they can't stand it, and they gnash their teeth. And Paul says, it was Saul at this time, says, get them, boys. And they pick up rocks and they dash him to smithereens. And it says that holy men of God weeping came and got Stephen's body and buried him. And then it says that Paul, Saul, from that point on, it says in Saul wreaked havoc among the churches and persecution was widespread and they killed every Christian they could. And in fact, he had a list in his pocket heading up to Damascus to kill more followers of Christ, he says. And a bright light came at noonday. It knocked me to the ground. And that's the part of the conversation that we had in our text already. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul, it's me. And Paul has a face-to-face encounter. This rebellious, angry, religious man has a face-to-face encounter with the risen Christ and it transforms his life. And he is now in prison for the very thing that he killed people for. So to Saul, the resurrection number four had been despicable. To Saul, the resurrection had been despicable. I want to point something out briefly in the NIV. Look at verse 11 of chapter 26. Look what it says. He says, many times, many a time, verse 11, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I take it that he literally grabbed people by their hair and shook them and said, say it, say it, say that he's not the Messiah. He was a horrible man. And he says, I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my, the NIV translates it, obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. He was the anti-missionary. That word, obsession against them in the Greek, translates with the word enraged, raging, fury. He had a raging fury, this man did, against the resurrection of Christ and anybody who believed it until he what? Until on that road, Jesus himself made himself clear to him in a vision that only he could see. And face to face, Jesus talked to him. And later in the, in the epistles, he tells us that he had multiple encounters with the risen Christ. In fact, he even surmised that the reason he had his thorn in the flesh, remember that? was so that he would not become proud because because Jesus had personally talked to him and selected him to go reach the Jews and the Gentiles with the gospel. To Saul, it had been despicable. But now notice, chapter 26, beginning with verse 12, he tells about his conversion through verse 23. And he says to them, Verse 23, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. But to the apostle Paul, number five, the resurrection had become very personal. 
It had become very personal. He had encountered him personally. Festus at that point, number six, jumps up. And to him, it's completely unbelievable. And I take it that these guys were feeling the pressure of the reality of the fact that if they said they believed the Old Testament, that they had no argument to argue that this was not the Messiah and therefore they had to react to his message. And people, have you noticed, do not like to react to the message of Jesus. To this day, it makes them very uncomfortable. Why? Why was Festus so uncomfortable? Because it was Festus to him, it was unbelievable. And then number seven, to Agrippa and the audience, it was very uncomfortable. To Agrippa and the audience, it was very uncomfortable. That's our people reacting to the message. And so they get up. What do they do? Paul says, Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? And Agrippa says, do you think in such a short time? He doesn't answer the question. He asks the question back because he's got to distance himself from this conversation. He, he doesn't have the spiritual or intellectual fortitude to deal with what Paul's arguing with him. So he's got to get out of there and he's probably literally under conviction of the Holy Spirit about his own sinfulness and about the own reality, his own reality of who Christ is. And so he asks the question back. You think you can convert me? He jumps up. Festus is already uncomfortable. Bernus is going wherever Agrippa goes. And all the highfalutin officials of the city in their straitjackets are going to follow him. And they get out of there. And notice what they do as they leave. They immediately change the subject. And they start talking about the political nuance and the technical nuance of the case. And they drop the subject of Paul and the resurrection and when a dead man named Jesus walking. They got to change the subject. Is that you? You get very uncomfortable around this resurrection of Christ. You see all these different reactions? Can you identify with any? The Jews, it was unacceptable to Agrippa. At first, it was quite a spectacle. To, to the Apostle Paul at this phase in his ministry, it was very reasonable. It was in the scriptures. But to Saul, the old Paul, it had been despicable. To the new Paul, it had become very personal in his encounter on Damascus Road. To Festus, it was unbelievable. And to Agrippa and the audience, they became very uncomfortable and had to get out of the room. Will you conclude with me by just turning to one passage of Scripture and just turn a few more pages to the right in your Bible? Only turn like three pages and you will come to Romans chapter 1. Here's something to take with you now, okay? Part of the point of the message this morning is that you need to react to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't just let it float around out there. Because if it's true, then what Jesus said is real. And if what Jesus said is real and what he did was real and who he was, the Son of God in the flesh, then when he says, as John quotes in John 14, 6, as John recorded, and when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me, then you have to face that reality as truth, that Jesus is not an option among many because he is the first fruits from the dead. He is the only one who resurrected from the grave. He alone was God in the flesh. Romans chapter 1, the same Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman believers, writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There it is again. This gospel was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scripture. This gospel was 
regarding his son, that would be Jesus, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and we know even which tribe he came from, don't we? Verse 4, look what Paul writes. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is the logical foundation of our faith. It is the, it is the logical foundation of our faith. If he rose again, he's the Son of God. Paul says he did. It's written in the book. Do you believe it? Are you a follower of the resurrected Christ? The logical flow of the foundation of our faith is this. Muhammad didn't raise, rise from the dead. Sun Myung Moon, I don't think he's died yet, but he's not going to rise from the dead. Joseph Smith hasn't risen from the dead after he caught in a crossfire. You see, Confucius is dead. There are no empty tombs except for Jesus. According to the scriptures, he rose again. That's why Paul later then says that this is an essential for your salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, this resurrection reality has something to do with the very understanding of who Jesus is, why he died on the cross. So do you get it? Do you get Good Friday and do you get Easter? Do you get that on Good Friday, that when they nailed him to the cross, that's where the great work of our salvation took place. That's where he became that great old King James word, the propitiation for our sin. He became a substitute for us. He, be, he, the perfect spotless lamb of God, was the only one qualified to go to the cross. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says there that he who knew no sin became sin for us. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And he put the exclamation point on it and underlined it and put it in bold font by rising from the dead on Sunday morning and said, see, it's real. It's real. My friend, do you know Jesus Christ today? A good way to figure out whether you're really a Christian or not is to ask yourself, do I really believe in the resurrection of Christ? And if you say, nah, the odds are you are not a Christian. You are not a believer in Christ you are not born again and you are still lost in your sin. But if you say, you know what? I got it. I got it. I believe in my heart that Jesus is the Christ and God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved, Paul said. Let's bow in prayer, please. Before I close with a word of prayer, I want you to ask yourself that question one more time. Do you believe that the resurrection of Christ is real? And if you don't, what's bothering you? Why are you so uncomfortable? It's what Moses and the prophets said. It's what the transformed life, lives of the disciples taught us. They preached it. Stephen died for it. The apostle Paul was imprisoned over it. 
It's right there on the pages of Scripture. And John wrote that these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Are you willing and ready this morning to admit that you're a sinner and that you believe that Jesus carried your sin to the cross and that his righteousness alone saves you by accepting what he did for you at the cross by faith, believing that his blood cleanses you of all sin? I trust that right now you will examine your heart and this Easter morning you will tell God in your heart and admit your sinfulness and tell him you're a believer in the risen Christ. And you'll have a sense through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you, you'll know that you're saved, your sin is forgiven. We're going to sing a hymn in a minute. It makes most people very uncomfortable to come forward at a service. But that might be just what somebody needs to do today, come forward and meet with a counselor and have someone pray with you. So when we sing the hymn in a minute, you're welcome to come forward Now, the old-fashioned way, come to the altar. Meet with a counselor. Let us us pray with you. Let us clarify these things with you. If you're not comfortable with that, meet me in the foyer. Let's talk. Most of all, you take care of business between you and God. Is the resurrection real to you, or are you like Agrippa and Festus? It's unbelievable, and it's uncomfortable, and you want to get out of the room. So, Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, and thank you that we serve a risen Savior today. And I just pray that you would make these things clear, especially to any whose thinking might be clouded today. And I just pray, Lord, that through the study, this brief study of the Scriptures today and this historical account, that these things were written that they might know that Jesus is the Christ today. So accomplish your purposes in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.